0: Hello, hello everyone. Hello my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's toolbox. All right. I have my ginger tea uh, and as you know, not all ginger teas are created equal and this one is particularly delicious with a good honey and a lot of lemon. I am ready. Today, ladies and gentlemen, I have a special gift for you. Uh, in 1988, I believe a Brazilian author, paulo I don't remember his last name, published a short novel, The Alchemist. I loved it. A beautifully written story. The story which is a part of the folklore or mythology of pretty much every culture. And it is about a man who started on a journey to find a treasure. And of course, he travels all over the world only to find out at the end that the treasure was hidden in his own backyard that is how i left i, I felt ladies and gentlemen one day when i spoke to richard gale and i speak to him every time gary knoll invites me to be a guest speaker on one of his videos or live programs as you know during these shows I talk mostly on a variety of subjects, health subjects, and I also invite guests. I have Dean Ornish here, Wim Hof, Dr. Joel Wallach, Dr. Pam Pepper. And I'm always on the outlook for interesting people. And the last time I spoke to Richard, I said to myself, this guy is one of the most interesting people I have ever spoken to. And I have been looking for someone on the outside. So I invited Richard to chat with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce Richard Gale to you. Richard is an executive producer of the Progressive Radio Network in Manhattan of the Gary Knowles program. He's a journalist, a producer, a scriptwriter of several multi-award winning documentary films including the environmental film you probably heard of it or seen it um, last call for tomorrow and the recent film manufacturing madness about the psychiatric industry he has a wild and varied career which includes being a veteran from the vietnam era as a naval medic a senior research analyst in the biotech and genetic industries for a decade. In the late 1980s, Richard lived in India and Nepal, studying with several Buddhist, Hindu and Sufi teachers, and editing spiritual texts in Tibetan uh, Buddhist monastery. Later, he headed the communications from um, Mikhail Gorbachev Foundation. However, his primary interest has been in the history of religion In traditional and contemporary spirituality. Richard has been teaching meditation since 1985. He is a graduate of Rutgers University and completed his graduate studies in the University of Chicago Divinity School in Buddhist and classical Chinese studies, where he was uh, mentored by the renowned historian uh, of religion and a colleague of Carl Jung. Yeah, Carl Jung. Uh, and the mentor's name is Marcia Eli- Eliade, if I could pronounce it correctly. Marcia Eliade. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without without further ado, Richard Gale. Hello, Richard. Welcome.
1: Hello, Peter. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a <laughs> pleasure to be with you. And it's Marcia Eliade. Marcia Eliade was. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's
0: who that is. You have such quite a a resume. And before I start asking questions about what your ideas are on such and such subjects, I would like to ask you about you as a person. Several questions. How, why you chose this quite not an ordinary path in life. Did it happen to you because you... Happen to be at certain place in certain circumstances, or you seek it out. Your journey.
1: Yeah, I think you know. I come from an Eastern European, um, um, uh, the Eastern European Catholic tradition. However, with Gypsy. So, as a young child, I grew up. It was you know the first generation immigrants coming from Poland and. a little bit of Lithuania, I kind of suspect. We don't know too much, but perhaps the uh, western part of Ukraine as well. Um, And so I grew up around all the ghost stories. I grew up around uh, the fortune-telling, the divinations. Uh, My aunt, who uh, he spent time with, she died when she was 105. She was kind of raised by the gypsies. And she used to do bird divination, which was really quite interesting. It's it's something you actually find during the Silver Age of Russian literature, uh, some of the more kind of avant-garde, late 19th century. Um, uh, These mystical literary figures like uh, Bieli and uh, Ivanov, uh, this, this bird language that comes out of Persia where you can... Look at the movements of the birds, and you can divine omens for the day by b- bird movements. And I, and she would do that. She, you know, I, I used to watch her first thing in the morning when I was a kid. So I was introduced, let's say, into the paranormal at a very, very early age. And so I, I always had kind of uh, just a fascination with it, and I always felt a little bit out of place in american civilization i think i don't think i when when i first moved to india and that was to uh to be the director of a social service edu- uh, education and medical project in a horrible terrible slum in new delhi everybody was living in this middle-aged 14th century graveyard where there just happened to be a lot of famous tombs of saints in this graveyard. And uh, I was serving the people and the lepers there and directing this project. But I felt more home when I was in Asia than I ever have, I think, in uh, in the United States. So I always had that attraction. That probably what led me into, you know, I was a teenager and, and getting started in yoga when I was 16 and starting meditation very young and early, so. Uh, it was just kind of this calling, if you want to call it kind of past life or whatever. Who knows? Some kind of a karmic connection. But I did. That's, uh,
0: I just kind of always stuck with that. Now, before, I still, before I start asking my questions, what is it that you would like us to know about you as a person before we start talking about the issues? Is there something you want to share about yourself? <laughs> I'm always interested in the person behind the ideas and even the experiences I
1: sometimes I feel some of the greatest work people can do is behind the scenes rather than to be in the forefront or once you know, people put themselves into the spotlight uh, there's a lot more pitfalls and traps And of course we see this throughout the new age movement and all these kind of self-proclaimed gurus and, and teachers of this and that who ultimately get very stuck in their own past and in their own teachings. And then it almost becomes, I find a lot of their teachings become convoluted because they cease to grow. Um, my, my teachers have been hidden gems. You know, people. You, if I were to name them, you wouldn't know who they were. Um, or most people wouldn't know. But you know, they were the ones that spent living up in the Himalayas and in a cave for twelve years, or just a simple weaver in Kashmir. You know, who um, basically illiterate. But I've never experienced anybody with such profound. Skills and concentra- concentration and attention and just a, a penetrating insight into um, the psychology and nature of others, and yet there is just these kind of hidden gems. And so, those have been my my teachers, um, not not any of the big, you know, popular teachers, although they certainly have contributed a lot to. Um, providing a lot of insight and wisdom and motivating people and getting people started on the path. But when you really want to start to dive deeply into the nature of your mind and consciousness, you need to be very guided. And when I, when I first met my Kashmiri teacher, that was kind of a very strange series of dreams that led me to it. And it was at a time when there was all the militants and the bombing and the jihadis were all coming over from Pakistan into Kashmir. And I had to kind of smuggle myself into Kashmir. I only knew that there was somebody I had to meet. I, I had no idea where I was going. I wandered around alleys, you know, and until finally this, Young man, about twenty-two years old, just popped up in the alley and came to me and this Kashmiri young Kashmiri boy who was kind of serving as a guide for me, just so I didn't get lost. And he said, "Follow me. There's somebody waiting for you." Just out of the, and so went to this house, and there was this, you know, this man who was just sitting in a corner, a very simple man, unassuming. You know, nothing. He was a Sufi just normal clothes, no beard, didn't look like a mula or any of that kind of stuff, just a simple kind of renegade mystic, jumped up, gave me a hug, he said, I've been waiting for you for five years, because I had had a dream five years earlier about somebody. And uh, I remember one of my Tibetan teachers saying, always test the teacher because the teacher's testing you. Um, the first words out of my mouth were, do you remember me? And he told me about the dream I had five years earlier. <laughs> wow. and he said, but you weren't ready. You weren't ready, but here you are now. And so, you know, these are these just kind of unassuming gems if you could find those people because then you're uh, the one important lesson And I've been teaching meditation since 1985. And of course I was very young. I wasn't, I, I don't know why, my teacher at the time even thought I could had the maturity, or the, the even the just the psychological maturity. Of course, you, it just kind of puffs up your ego. So I I tripped and fell and stumbled over myself in many many times. And um, I remember Lala is just I just called this this uh, super teacher in Kashmir, Lala, and he said to me, you know, when you're Guiding somebody along the spiritual path, in the beginning, it's very simple. You have two doors. You have to guide that person to the correct door. And there's three doors. You have to guide them through the correct door. And then there's five. There's ten. There's a hundred. And God help you if you lead that person through the wrong door. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like a God smack for me. It was kind of a wake up call to get off my you know self proclaimed throne thinking I knew anything or anything as a teacher um and this is I was young i mean this is this is nineteen ninety one when this when this um, when when this meeting occurred so i've always felt well i''m going i'm gonna, i'm going I'm remain behind the scenes you know those that those that kind of come along my path fine i will i will help and guide them, but um, I'm not going to put up any shingles on my door at all.
0: Now you travel this long journey. I think you and I, Richard, are somewhere around the same age, right? I'm about to turn 17. Yeah, we both are. I'll be in July, right? And I'm on August 2nd. (laughs) Okay, so
1: I'm I'm, on July 22nd, yep.
0: Uh, Well, then what? And my, my, my best friend growing up, he's, he's August 2nd, too. <laughs> so, but I know I found myself asking this question in the last few months on, where am I going? I may live from this point on for five years, or 25 years, or 50 years. I don't know. But it is limited. How do I want to spend this time did you ask yourself this question, you know, after, after traveling this long journey, did you look at the, the remaining journey or you didn't? You
1: know, um, I'd have to say the majority, because I didn't have a child until my, you know, I was what, 40, almost 48, my first child. So I was, I mean, I, I think those exactly years, it was just really important. a journey of self-indulgence. You know, spirituality is, I mean, look at spirituality today, the whole, you know, the new psychedelic renaissance. Um, and I'm not, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize or put down the experiences people have. I'm sure many of them are very profound or they could be life-changing and whatnot. I'm not going to, um, and it's perfectly fine. But the level of self-indulgence is just, is off the roof um, just because you've had a bunch of experiences uh, you know, of the alter states of consciousness, but then thinking that you actually know something or that you've actually been able to ever deal with your mental and emotional afflictions. And that's what we really need to be focusing on because and so much of the new spirituality today is just kind of separated and removed from the cultivation of ethics particularly those ethics of loving kindness and, you know, kind of the sense of empathetic joy or a real authentic um, equanimity is the way we view people because we tend to divide others up between, you know, I like, I don't like, I don't care, I'm neutral. But how do you level the playing field that we can actually feel um, compassion even for those that we don't like? Or that were neutral to, So, and, and, and of course, compassion. Uh, and those, to me, I, I think those are the—that's the real engine. That's the fuel in the tank. If anybody's going to try to follow a real, authentic spiritual path for growth, there, where you're, you're going to be willing to really dive and, and and dive deep to confront the roots of our. Mental, mental, and emotional afflictions, and to be able to rip them out from the root, you need to have that ethical grounding uh, as your motivative motivation. So, that's one of my big criticisms, of course, of this kind of secular spirituality that's taken over in
0: Western culture. It's, it's just kind of milk toast. In our correspondence, Richard, you mentioned that the most important. And I ask you, what are the subjects you would would like to discuss? You wrote the most important topics of today uh, are subject uh, are of those of scientific materialism. Uh, what's happening in the in the Western society? Would you elaborate a little more on it? Yeah, I have a deep concern
1: about, uh, where this kind of radicalized scientific materialism. Um, and it's very interesting because it tends to be more in the biological sciences rather than, which are not really, you know, the biological science, like evolutionary biology, medicine, neuroscience, uh, they're actually kind of soft sciences. It's, it it, it's, they're not the hard science like physics. Or chemistry, engineering, or mathematics per se, Um, those kind of hard sciences. But these real radical. I mean, if you look at the main people in the whole new atheism movement today, you know, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, um, Michael DeGracia or Graciano at at Princeton, who doesn't believe consciousness even exists. You know, he just says it's a figment of our imagination. I, I just, you know, as soon as we start relegating the human being to be as nothing more than a product of uh, of, of genetic evolution, uh, we, we're just turning ourselves into robots. Um, and I, I find this, this to be very, very dangerous because if. It renegs any idea that we have free will, and that's one. And if there's no real free will, then free uh, free will, then where's morality? Where's where's the ethical component if we're just kind of already programmed uh, through our genes or through our inheritance and all? So, and this is what's being taught in a lot of universities today. A lot of universities, the the skeptic organizations, like the Center for Inquiry and the Skeptic Society, they've really infiltrated the universities today. So, I see even freshmen. There's some of the required courses. They'll have like you have to take a course in critical thinking, and they start right off. You know, religion is is just bogus. Um, for all the you know the, the people who deny climate change. You know, they're crazies. Uh, um, all this like homeopathy or acupuncture, alternative medicine, it's all just hokum. Uh, this is what kids are, the freshmen are being taught when they take this course. My, and I know this for a fact is my daughter had to take a, a course like this just to, to fulfill a requirement. Um, so I think there's something very dangerous in this movement uh, because it's just a new form of idolatry and, of course, we can idolize, and, I mean, we can idolize anything, right? I mean, anything we can, we can brainwash ourselves into believing anything. So when you have people like, you know, Anthony Fauci saying, you know, if you criticize me, you're criticizing science, I mean, that's, that's the height of hubric idolatry. Uh, and, of course, this goes back, really, to Sir Thomas Huxley in the middle of the 19th century when he, it was a, a raving atheist, but he wanted to establish the Church Scientific. Uh, there would be a Church of Science that would replace all religion, and you know that was of course, uh, Alex Huxley's grandfather. Interesting enough, Alex Huxley's um, Alex Huxley's uh, was a brother, Julian. He was one of the main proponents of eugenics in the early part of the twentieth uh, century. Mm-hmm. So this is it. it can this it kind of a materialistic reductionism or naive realism uh, it, it can have be utterly catastrophic? And of course, you see that these are the same kind of people that believe in transhumanism and you know the artificial intelligence and all this stuff that's going on. Uh, it, it's completely contradictory. It's diametrically opposed to what every. Religious at the spirit, religious uh, religion at the spiritual level has ever said where mind and consciousness are primary over matter. And if you look at read any of the, you know, I, I'm not that v- well versed in, in Jewish uh, uh, mysticism, but yeah, you know, I've read uh, uh, Isaac, um, what's his name, uh, Abraham Al and I've read Seven uh, Sabbatayi and. Martin Buber, um, different different Jewish mystics, uh, the Sefer Haba here. And yes, you find there, there is that the the mind or consciousness is primary to matter. And whereas we are being told through evolution that the brain is primary. Everything's the brain, the more you go to um, the government's uh, the National Institute of Mental Health, increasingly you find more and more mental health conditions as a brain, listed as a brain disorder. Everything's and so it's not just the fact that there are mental disorders that are just a product of the brain but your happiness is a product of your brain if you happen to feel love for someone well that's your brain your brain's doing you know the brains in our in this kind of materialistic paradigm has become the all creating sovereign the all creating sovereign is the brain and of course so, in the religious it's something else
0: to speak about brain disorders pays <laughs> then you can invent different pills that will f- fix the brain disorder,
1: right? It's a boon to the pharmaceutical industry, of course. But if this goes back, you really can trace this back. I think. I mean, I think in in the late nineteenth century, there was a little there was some a light in Western um, psychology with with William James, you know, and that whole school of the ins- introspectionist school. Um, you know even William James felt that at his time at the end of the nineteenth century, he felt that psychology was at the same place before Galileo you know discovered the uh, the heliocentric uh, universe. I mean he felt it was it was that primitive and barbaric at that time, and certainly it was in many respects. but it was the idea with William James that if you apply introspection, acknowledging a person's subjective experience as having value or understanding a person's psyche. You see that this this went out of the comfort zone. This this now departed from the comfort zone of, of of a kind of materialistic scientific view. And so eventually when um John Watson comes along, the founder of Behaviorism 1910, 1913, well they just kind of drove a stake into the heart of the introspectionist movement with behaviors and that no, we're not going to look at the mind. We're not going to look at consciousness. We're not going to do any introspection. Uh, we don't care about your subjective experiences because you can't measure it. We're only going to look what you can measure, you can quantify, you can, um, um, and, and that of course is you know, you look at a person's behavior, look at a person's brain, see what, you know, what parts of the brain are lighting up. And so this has been the trajectory we've been on since really the start, you know, the start of behaviors around 1910 and, and John Watson's famous essay in 1913 uh, when they just kind of buried uh, the introspectionist movement so they couldn't even find its grave anymore. You know, mm-hmm. so, I so. so I do... I, I find it very, very dangerous in many respects. You know, just in the same way as climate change will affect you know our body and our and our um, our lives. Um, you know, this kind of scientific
0: reductionism
1: is a great threat to our collective psyche.
0: It's interesting how they actually uh, hijack the word science, and then they. Uh, use the word science versus religion for example where the word sound science literally mean comes from Latin sense which means uh, knowledge and knowledge by definition is understanding gained through experience so any understanding that you get gained through experience whether it's understanding of God or infinite or your feelings that's science but now it's as, as you said, Everything is reduced to if you can measure it, it it's real. But that goes back, I, I believe, all the way to Rene Descartes and seventeenth century, right? When William yeah. Harvey discovered that the, the heart is a pump, that's all yes. it is. Yes,
1: yeah. I, I I think that's true. I think it's true. I mean, I, especially in this in the in the in the the life sciences, uh, I was. I think, remember one of my classes I gave, I kind of used the example, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, the brain scientists today and these people trying to seek, trying to find consciousness or having a definition of the mind, what are about 150 different definitions of consciousness now. Um, it, it's kind of like trying to, I, I use the examples, like trying to study the sunrise but facing west, you know? You only see reflections of the rising sun, you know, the sky, the blue, the dark sky turns blue, there's the coloring in the clouds, so you, you see displays, you see reflections, you see correlations, but you're not looking at the sunrise, and that's what we do in meditation in particular, and what William James was trying to do, and, and the others in that group, like Kishner at Cornell and Wilhelm Luntz and Leipzig—you know—people that were part of that introspectionist movement. Um, it was the idea: let's try to look at the mind and consciousness directly. Um, but we've been, you know, through behaviorism and neuroscience. That's these—all these people are looking at the brain. They're just facing west. Um, they're not even. It's kind of funny that you know that they methodologically that they wouldn't even be looking at the very thing that they're trying to understand. They're just looking at correlations and there's a lot. And the correlations, I mean, there wonderful things have been discovered in science. There's been enormous things to be discovered about the brain and whatnot, but then you make a metaphysical leap of faith once you say that, okay, a uh, certain part of the brain, you know, contains the, images and memories of your mom or your first pet dog or anything like that, you know, just this idea that this lump of protein, fat, water, and electric currents can produce all these things that the brain does, and to just assume that it's all a product of the brain just seems quite silly to me. You know, and of course this is the big debate. Is consciousness contained within us, or is it also you know, without us, you know, outside of us as well. It's the big, big debate now, you know, what they call the hard question or the hard problem.
0: Richard, if I understand you correctly, what you are saying is if we disconnect ourselves from the sacred and, and reduce ourselves to basic rules that assure people's survival and avoidance of conflicts, we're opting for becoming just as those rules, become robots is is that that what you're trying to you saying and, and if you are my my first question is um, what do you suggest as a as an alternative to this powerful tendency which which actually is Uh, encouraged by some special interests. They want us to become robots. They want us to be reduced to do don't turn left turn right say this pronoun, uh, say don't say this word and so on, then you're a perfect citizen that can be manipulated, I think. What do you think? Oh, I
1: think so. I mean, there, there's been a, an enormous amount of research done throughout uh, different kinds of think tanks and institutions into you know the manipulation of thoughts. The we know this. There's no secret behind this anymore. Uh, we know there's many, many ways to. I mean, just, just uh, look at what who's the fa- the father of uh, the father of advertising? Who, who was that? Am I thinking? Yeah, you know, Freud was a Freud's nephew or Freud's uh, relative.
0: I, I don't um, know.
1: I don't know who was the father. Yeah, but, you know, he was. He was. The, he was the you know the father of modern advertising. He just knew how to manipulate people's uh, emotions and feelings. You know, like the whole idea of the uh, the whole view of the, a, a diamond is forever. I mean, you know, back in the end of the. 19th century, early 20th century of the engagement ring. That was just a, that was a complete advertising marketing scheme to create this image of the diamond forever. And, and, uh, he was, uh, Bernays, it begins with a B Edward, Edward, uh, Bernays. uh he was, uh, yeah. This, this whole idea he was hired by the diamond industry the Beers to create this mythology and look at how we've all bought in and this idea of the engagement, ring It's just a ploy to sell more diamonds. Um, and there were, you know, presidential campaigns would hire him and, um, just to, to manipulate the, the emotions of, of the audience and the population. And, and we all and you know, the mainstream media is doing that all the time to us. It's probably always been around with us, but I think it's just become kind of more egregious over, over the decades. Um, and I think a lot of that's just that there's been this loss of, of the ethical component has just been lost because, um, because we can make, turn humans into being threats, threats for anything you know, that threat to threaten our safety or our way of life or whatever. I mean, look how, how we, we do that with, you know, enemies in China, you know, how the way we portray Putin or Russia and all. I mean, I'm a Chinese scholar, and I don't have any great love for China by any means. Chinese is my second language. Um, there are many, many things I don't like. In fact, so much so, <laughs> I forgot so much Chinese. However, you know, when I look at, the Chinese, um, websites, uh, news sites, 80%, over 80% of the Chinese feel that they have a lot of freedom. They're happy. They're happy. Okay. We can call them by any name and, you know, derogatory name you want to call Xi Jinping or the communist government, but if they're happy, if they're content, who's it? Who are we to interfere with that? They have a you know China has its own cultural value system. It doesn't really overlap or, or really connect with you know the value system that we kind of um, inherited from greece and and, and Rome and, and europe and, and especially I mean and you have to say in Christianity, I mean look christian I mean so much of our culture is really Christian based when you really consider it. Um, I mean, God's been removed from it, but there's, <laughs> but there's still the, the kind of, uh, m- many of those kind of, kind of value system and all is still very Christian oriented. So, um, but who are we to, to criticize or say, you know, that the Chinese aren't happy or, you know, they're under a dictatorship and we have to, we have to become their enemy. This is silly and ridiculous. It really is. It's Me like, let cultures be what they are, respect and honor them for what they are, and that's their own problem.
0: You know? In the 14th century, I believe, Marco Polo traveled to China, and he wrote, this is an amazing culture, if, and so powerful and so uh, ingenious. If they were warlike, they would conquer the world. I remember reading this do you feel there is any threat now they, they are quite a powerful military uh, uh, country do you feel there is any threat from china to western civilization only because we are so um only because of our own arrogance and
1: our war posturing but do I feel that they're, they want, they have some kind of intent and in, in conquering? No, I don't. I don't feel that way about Russia either. Um, uh, at least, um, neither one and nor Iran, you know, they're it's just that we may disagree with their, their systems of government. Um, but they, those, those governments, they, they emerge from their, from that very deeply ingrained cultural and value base. Uh, I mean, one thing from China is it's always been the strength of the emperor. Um, I mean, there was never any democracy ever in the the millennial history of China. Um, there's no idea of democracy or even of a parliamentary system. There was, it was only strong rulers, but yes, the, there was the mandate of heaven. The emperor, and Xi Jinping identifies himself very much as a Confucian emperor in that kind of, but, you know, you you have to do good for the people, and, um, and that only but, and by doing so will you, can you legitimately have heaven? Uh, I mean, Mao, of course, Mao Zedong, uh, you know, was was kind of was a was a, a huge exception to that because he, he basically embraced Stalinism. He didn't even really embrace Marx. He was more Stalinist. But um, yeah, so I, I mean, you just don't. China was never, except under the Mongol rule. But China was never, never, ever an expansionist nation. Mm -hmm. It was very big in trade and it still is big in trade but it was never expansionist.
0: Well, you know they say all wars are really wars about turf, about economics and for sure China is looking for ways to expand if not territorially but economically and to dominate the world. That's that's quite clear.
1: Oh, I think so In, at an economic level, but that—that's not necessarily. Uh, but that's not territorial. That's 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 economics. And China, it has a long to with the Silk Road and all, so it had it had a long tradition of that too. The Chinese merchants and stuff. Um, you know there was a time when China was actually kind of, they never really were big of a much of a naval power but there was a little period of time when they they did have a kind of naval power um but that was that was kind of short lasting but throughout its history the chinese they weren't they were really expansionists. i mean they had their border wars and their border fighting like with the tibetans and
0: and um the mongols uh, but otherwise they have, much kept to themselves. There was not much of a war between Chinese and Tibetans. Chinese just rolled in and took it over and killed and raped nuns and destroyed monasteries.
1: Yep, and one of my teachers spent 18 years in a concentration camp. Mm. He was a a young monk and, you know, of course, uh, he was a young monk and then he, um, when the, the Chinese invaded, Uh, There were monks who decided to pick up arms. He was one of them. And they were the last groups way up in the mountains, up in the Kham region, Uh, which is like the kind of wild and woolly west uh, in western Tibet, or excuse me, eastern Tibet. And uh, they were the group that he was in part of that group where the CIA was supposed to be uh, dropping off munitions and weapons to them. Uh, parachuting him down never did they couldn't have, the west and CIA completely betrayed the Tibetan guerrillas and so they were all uh, captured and he spent uh yeah 18 years in a Chinese labor camp and very interesting I know a couple of them um, when he came out and he first came to the west I can't remember if it was Europe or America but his first visit and he looked around and he said You know, I had more inner happiness and peace while I was in the concentration camp than most of these Westerners I see free in their cities.
0: Wow, wow. Yes. Tells you where peace is. It's always inside. Since we are in China, you know, just as there were villains of the 20th century, such as Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, many others there yeah. were heroes of 20th century such as mahatma gandhi i believe winston churchill dr right. martin luther king and i believe that among the heroes of 20th century there were mikhail gorbachev and ronald reagan because mm-hmm. I, they changed the world and i and you i didn't didn't had no idea that you were involved with gorbachev if you don't mm-hmm. mind would put a little bit Tell us uh, about uh, what part you pro- played in his foundation, what you did, and uh, if you met him personally, and so on. Yeah, so I, this was after I left the...
1: Uh, after I had left uh, biotech, well, I was with a genetics company, and that was a very unpleasant experience. I uh, That was my first hand experience of just falsification of science, uh, just outright lies corruption. Um, you know, just in order to get your stock, you know, their stock uh, stocks, uh, higher on the stock market on I mean, the outright lies, just made up BS that would get published as science and scientific papers. Um, and, but I did know somebody who was connected with them and they invited me, I was invited to, um, to um, take uh, the director, head up the the communications. Now, it was a very small group. There were only seven of us. Uh, we were in the Presidio in San Francisco. Uh, city of San Francisco gave us uh, a house right on the, right on the water there, right at the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was beautiful, 10, 20, 20, uh, 10 yards away from the parking lot. was, we were right on the beach. And uh, yeah, we were connected. I mean, our network of people, you never knew who, you know, Ilya Weissel and, uh, oh, Jane Goodall and uh, Jose Rama uh, Horta, Nobel Prize winner from East Timor. All these people are connected, Ted Turner, Gorbachev. Um, but our main thing was Gorbachev was had a great deal of respect for civil society. And this was at the time, you know, there was the big, uh, the anti-globalization before nine, nine eleven. there was the big anti-globalization protests uh, in C- Seattle against the World Trade Organization. There was the big one against the World Bank and the uh, uh, IMF in Prague. We went, we went there to hang out with Rock Hollow, but also to go to get tear gassed as well, which is kind of fun. And um, Gorbachev, those years, and I was there with Gorbachev, Gorbachev kind of took a back seat from public view. Uh, He, he was kind of a tragic, I mean, when I met him, I found him to be a bit of a tragic figure. He was really disliked, of course, in Russia. They really disliked him because Yeltsin was such those years with Yeltsin was such an utter disaster for the Russians. And um, now, Jim Garrison, the president, I, I should turn you on to Jim Garrison if you want to interview him. I, I can. He's a good, good friend of mine. So Jim Garrison, he um, he was the last Westerner to be in the. Kremlin with Gorbachev on his kind of last day as the president of, of the Soviet Union. And they made a trip together to the United States and they had first sort of stopped off and to go to the council of foreign relations where Gorbachev met with Kissinger. There's a little kind of fun little story. as what Jim told me that cause Jim was present and Kissinger asked Gorbachev and he goes, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, uh, why is it that you failed? Because let's remember, you know, he was kind of ousted, right? Um, well, the, y- yes. I mean, there, there,
0: yeah, he, there were there were, there it, were those he, there. They kind of he, he was kind of ousted was because he succeeded, not because he failed. Well,
1: Kissinger asked him why he, he kind of failed all right, to, to, be, to, to remain as as the president of the new Russia, okay, referring to that. And Gorbachev, and, and the way Jim described it, he says Gorbachev, he didn't answer right away. He was very reflective. He reflected, and then he responded, because I did not evaluate reality harshly enough.
0: Wow. I thought that was a really interesting statement. How do you understand it? How do you understand this statement? Uh, he was idealistic. He was very. He was actually quite naive, you know.
1: Um, mm. He was quite naive, and there was some of that insult. And I admit, I think there was some of that insult in Nitsin as well. Mm. Um, you know, of course, kind of a, it was brave individual and all uh but he kind of got persuaded and seduced by when his time in the west also and he started to see another side of things after his experience in the west and I think Gorbachev also I think Gorbachev got kind of caught up in the celebrity status you know I mean he came to the west he left he left Russia came to the west and he you know, it's just all the positive media and everybody wanting to interview him and and all this. Um, I don't want to say it went to his head. I just I think it gave him a, a distorted view.
0: Um, Richard, I yeah. think before he went to the West, before Gorbachev was naive because he bought. He was naive to believe. That Americans will keep their word. Gorbachev yeah, exactly. asked asked uh, Reagan. Yeah. Asked him a question. Will you not? Will do you give me assurances that you will not begin to expand NATO and surround the so, former Russia with? with well, that was with Bush. That yeah. was with Bush. What, what? That was with Bush, not with Reagan. That was with. The it was Bush. with oh, Bush, not Reagan. Okay. No, with Daddy Bush. Yeah. Okay. So, so with Daddy Bush, and Bush said right. absolutely not. Right. Right. I actually I have somewhere the transcript of, of this talk, and yeah. so Americans betrayed him. He he trusted them. He did. Yeah, and, he did. and now they they hold it against Putin. I'm not, by the way, I'm not a fan of Putin. He was a chief of AGB. He was, he's not a good guy, but he would be a terrible president if he would not try to put a stop of expansion of NATO and turn Ukraine as part of NATO.
1: Right, right, and more important is the the long term. You can look at the RAND Corporation report on that was commissioned by the Department of Defense and the uh, intelligence agencies so at the nineteen, or excuse me, twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. You can find you can download it online uh, the RAND. It was their analysis of Russia, and basically it was okay. We're going to use. Ukraine is a proxy for war. our intention and goal is to balkanize, break up the Soviet Union because we're too fearful that this big, it's the largest landmass country in the world. It's just enormously rich in and, um in minerals and natural resources. It's a country in which um Actually, climate change in some ways benefits Russia, and Russia knows that. Putin has stated as much because we're going to have longer growing seasons. You know, when after Maidan and when Monsanto and Cargill and all these American com- companies moved into Ukraine, um, taking over a lot of the land in Ukraine, especially Monsanto. And that's when Putin did a, 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 a ban on GMO, genetically modified uh, foods, into Russia. Mm-hmm. And he said, we're going to become the organic capital of the world. And they're doing it.
0: Wow. Well, well, so- you
1: know? and, and climate change will benefit them because they've got, you know, it's going to be longer growing seasons. A lot, of, a lot of land that you can't really farm now will end up, Will eventually be able to farm. So, in the long term, you know, Russia is really positioned to be the uh, could actually become even a, take over China from as an economic power mm-hmm. because it's going to have more resources. China China relies you know so much as resources relies on the, on the global south. Russia Russia much less so. Mm-hmm.
0: But Richard, in, we have only another six, seven minutes. I have one more question. You've been yeah. teaching, I have actually many, many questions. Maybe God willing, we'll uh, meet one one more time, uh, some <coughs> time in the future. But you've been teaching meditation since 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you recommend some some introductory uh, uh, meditation technique to our audience if they were interested in starting somewhere. That's for those who never did any meditation. You know, um, well, the right now the
1: big craze is the mindfulness meditation movement. Um, I have um, I kind of call it the secular spirituality of capitalism. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, and I don't have any, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a extraordinary. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful method, meditative method. Of course it, it goes back to um, Buddhism primarily, but it, it's found in every tradition and di- in different ways. Um for me i start people rather than doing a practice when you want to begin probing into the nature of your mind we need to become first become more attentive to learn how to settle our awareness so i mean i tell my students one of the most important words and really let it burn into your mind and understanding is the word reification. Reification, you know, so so from the Latin res means to think and um in Latin for defication means to uh to make, to construct. So it's thing making. We we take our thoughts, we take our memories, we take our images, we take our ideas. We by reifying them, we are assigning them some kind of a self-existence, almost as an absolute that they don't have. They are simply appearances. They are nothing more than appearances. You know, any time I mean, people we all probably have recognized that there are times when we can be kind of flooded or bombarded with some negative thoughts. And rather than reifying them, meaning that we take, we kind of latch onto them. We grasp them. It's kind of like, you know, good description would be like the tentacle of an octopus. Well, it's just a fish. But once the the tentacle latches on, now it's my fish. I take ownership. So we take ownership of those memories. We take ownership of those thoughts and those images that actually then become, you know, the mental, emotional afflictions of rage, anger, fear, self doubt, clinging, you know, our emotions are always reactive to things that arise simply in this space of the mind. So the more and more we can learn to become just simply attentive as an observer to the movements of the mind, the comings and the goings of the activities of the mind, and separate our conscious awareness from them so that our awareness is just simply like a candle flame that is unflickering Amidst the movements of the mind and the turmoil, and gradually, just all that, all that movement of the mind just kind of subsides, 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 and one enters into a very, into, um, kind of a blissful, non-cognitive, and um, well, excuse, not um, non-conceptual, uh, blissful, luminous, quiescent state of, of some, what we call samadhi, or some kind, of like one point of concentration. Um, and then begin doing the more advanced stuff and probing into the nature of mind and consciousness. But I think if we could just begin simply with learning how to become more, more attentive to the comings and goings of the mental phenomena, that's, that's the best one, I think, the best place to start. And it always begins with relaxation. I always tell relaxation, relaxation, relaxation. It's almost like you're putting your body and you're putting your breath to sleep, but you're remaining just so luminous, lucid, clear, sharp in your awareness. And to be able to sustain and maintain that um, while you're in this very deep, relaxed state. And interesting enough, when we do that, we are actually activating the gamma frequencies in, 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 our, in the brain, our gamma frequencies, which is where most of the, the um, neuroplasticity of the of the brain's kind of regenerative quality uh, comes from. I have a hypothesis. If you could teach this and even teach it like dreaming to senior citizens, you could probably, I believe it's just a hypothesis. I have no proof of this, but I think you could actually probably... Uh, um, to prevent uh, things like dementia and Alzheimer's.
0: Well, Richard, <laughs> thank you so, so super much. Uh, it's been such an enriching experience for me. You know, frankly, that this show will be posted as usually they are uh, next day, and I intend to listen to it again because you shared with so many interesting ideas and <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> experiences. So I, I'm I'm privileged to know you, and I'm excited that I know you. I can just pick up the phone. Uh, and say we'll get together
1: well, next. Time I get down in the city, i'll be and I have to make a trip. Maybe if you can come to the Jersey Shore, we can be in the Jersey Shore. Where okay. I might. Friend, so,
0: thank you, thank you very much. Okay. all right, Pleasure. all right,
1: you. Thank you very much, too, for the opportunity. I, I don't do this very often, almost not at all. So. It's 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 I, a,
0: it's a I, I for me. we'll we'll get connected and then maybe we'll make make another um, show. Certainly, sure. so we'll Okay. Any questions still. God bless. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, our time is coming to conclusion today. Thank you for being with us and I'm looking forward to having your attention next week on Tuesday at two PM. Uh again, I welcome your emails if you have any questions or comments about this show or anything you want me to talk about in the future again thank you be happy and peace to all who want to live in peace